evening. Obviously, this is a bit different than normal. Um, you guys can express your frustration to Z and Max later from both being gone the same weekend. Um, <laughs> but I'm excited to, to walk through tonight's passage with you guys. So as a refresher, uh, we're about halfway through Luke 1. And at this point, the angel Gabriel has made two announcements about upcoming births. The first to Zechariah about John the Baptist, and the second, which we talked about last week, to Mary regarding Jesus. And during that announcement, um, Gabriel also announced to Mary that Elizabeth was pregnant. Uh, Mary, we saw last week, responds with faith, and that sort of contrasted with Zechariah's response of unbelief. Uh, when the birth of John the Baptist was announced. So we have two upcoming births, uh, similar in their miraculous uh, like nature, uh, but also different in their origin. So John the Baptist's or origin is completely human, although Zechariah and Elizabeth were be way beyond childbearing years, which would mean, you know, this is a miracle. They were still from a human born... It was born a human. But Jesus, on the other hand, was divine, born through the Holy Spirit. And so this is the point in the story where these two upcoming births converge when Mary visits Elizabeth. Um, as we go through today's passage, uh, I want us to remember and that we can have confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, this can be seen in our salvation, but also our sanctification. And so in, in the passage, it takes the form of community, it takes the form of actually seeing and responding to Jesus, and it also takes the form of faith. But I want us all to connect that back to the Holy Spirit. So we'll start in verse 39. So we read, In those days Mary rose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So putting ourselves in Mary's shoes, um, she's young pledged to be married, um, has just been told by an angel that she's about to have a baby, the savior of the world. Um, so she responds with faith. We talked about that last week, but she also has some problems. Uh, in that culture, becoming pregnant before being married is taboo. And also, who would believe her? Uh, she was told by an angel that she's going to have a baby even though she is a virgin. Um, so she could be doubted, ostracized, and like I said, potentially even killed. And so her best case scenario, as we see Joseph planning to do in Matthew's gospel, is for Joseph just to divorce her quietly. So divorce is her best case scenario. Her worst case scenario, as I mentioned, is death. So in the time of the patriarchs and also in Le Levitical law, um, becoming pregnant outside of marriage could result in death. So in the story of Judah and Tamar, for example, ancestors of Jesus, Tamar seduces her father-in-law Judah without him knowing it is her. Uh, when he finds out that she's pregnant, uh, he doesn't know that he's the father, but he says in Genesis 38:24, bring her out and let her be burned. Additionally, Deuteronomy 27, 22 through 25 requires death for adultery, specifically calling out uh, young women who are pledged to be married who willingly engage in sex before marriage and become pregnant. So from a worldly circumstantial perspective, Mary is, is in trouble in a sense. So as a result, Mary immediately goes to the one person who would truly understand what she is going through, um, who's also just received a message from Gabriel, Elizabeth. Uh, 
Uh, now, the exact distance from Nazareth to this hill country in Judah is unknown, but it's estimated to be between 80 to 100 miles. So this isn't a quick walk down the street. Uh, this journey would take at least three to four days, and she would have to caravan with other people. And remember, she's a young woman, so I mean, this is a dangerous journey. So we have to ask ourselves, um, why would Mary take such a drastic journey to see Elizabeth? And I think the first reason is uh, a respectable witness. So you have Mary and Elizabeth members, or I'm sorry, Elizabeth and Zechariah, members of the priestly class, and their witness and testimony to Mary's story would be respected in the community. They would be able to vouch for her, um, share that she is above reproach, and her story is not just any sort of front for adultery. Um, second, and possibly more applicably, uh, Mary demonstrates the importance and value of community. And so her visit with Elizabeth will help affirm her faith, give her support, and encourage her. Uh, God as believers has made us to need other members of the body. And as each part of the body is dependent on each of the other parts, uh, the family of believers is a gift from God that is meant for, for his glory. So next week, uh, we'll talk about the Song of Mary, uh, in which she gives all praise to God for what has been done in her life and what is about to be done. Uh, reading through Luke, though, if you're anything like me, it seems almost instantaneous. Gabriel comes, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and then Mary praises God. Uh, it seems like a fleeting emotional response we often associate with worship. But we have to remember that there is at least a three to four day gap between Gabriel's message, Mary visiting Elizabeth, and then Mary's song. So in reality, Mary's praise was instigated and assisted by the support and encouragement of Elizabeth. Her song wasn't a quick emotional response, it was true worship. Uh, and Elizabeth too, as we'll see in a minute, praises God in light of coming together with Mary. So community drew both of their gazes to God from their own circumstances. The easy application is just to say community is important, but I think two questions to consider is, do you know your role in community? And then are you using that role to bring others' gaze to God? So are you, do you know your role and are you using that role to bring others' gaze to God? Uh, the purpose of community is not to be a social club. It's not just to be comfortable and for believers to hang out together. The purpose of community, like we said, is to give glory to God. For example, if, if a brother or sister comes to you and is struggling with a sin or something in life, our, our role is not to make them feel better or have confidence in themselves. Our role is to point them to the character of God in order that they may have faith in God's ability. Uh, if we truly care about each other, we'll not settle for empty, short-term emotional encouragements to make each other feel better. We will desire to speak the truth of God's word into the situation. Uh, Hebrews 3.13 says to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We each have specific gifts of grace given to us for the glory of God and the benefit of the body. This type of God-glorifying community will only happen when we are filled with the Spirit and our hearts are renewed. On our own, we will constantly fall back into worldly community, in which really is just centered on ourselves, not God. But, and, and we'll see this more as the passage plays out, the Spirit gives us the ability to see God and therefore point others to God. You can't pour out what you don't have in yourself. In this case, God-honoring relationships can only occur when our own relationship with God has been restored through the Spirit.
Um, moving on, verse 41 starts with, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Um, pausing there, and we're not going to spend a ton of time, but it's worth taking a moment to mention the clear call out God's word has regarding the unborn. So this isn't the main point of the passage, but it's also one of the clearest pictures in scripture on the fact that life starts from conception. You have John the Baptist, an unborn baby in the womb, responding to the presence of Jesus, another unborn baby in the womb. Additionally, John refers to, or Luke refers to John as a baby, not, not a fetus. Um, so as I mentioned, we talked about this in church about two months ago, but as Christians, we have to stand for truth here. The, the world disciples us um, that the state-sanctioned murder of over half a million babies a year is not only acceptable, but it should be celebrated. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, whether it be in your job, living situation, family, friends, it's our responsibility as ambassadors of Christ to declare that abortion is murder and against the will of God. So declaring that message is actually the most loving thing we can do to the people around us, not even though it's scary, because unbelievers need to hear God's will in this arena. Okay, jumping back into verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So we see Elizabeth's immediate response to Mary's entrance here. Um, starting in verse 42, we can focus on the focus and direction of that response. It would be easy to think that Elizabeth is pra praising Mary. Um, but in reality, both uses of the word blessed in verse 42 are directly addressed to Jesus. Mary in herself, while an example of a humble and faith-filled response, is not the focus. It is Jesus. This is all about God's grace. Mary has no merit and has not earned anything from God. Her being gifted with the blessing of carrying the Messiah and King of the world is all a gift of God's grace. So how is Elizabeth then referring to Jesus when she says, blessed are you among women? So in Hebrew culture, um, a woman's significance was often tied to her children. That is why there was a lot of shame for a woman if they were barren. So if your child was great, you were great. If your child was shameful or you didn't have any children, you were therefore shameful. So as a result, Mary is blessed among women because of her child. Mary is the most blessed woman because her child, the Son of God and Savior of the world, is the greatest. This is confirmed in the second half of verse 42 when Elizabeth said, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Christ is the one who is lifted up, blessed, and praised. Now before her declaration, uh, verse 42 says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This can be seen as an overtaking by the Holy Spirit in which he has all-consuming control over God's people in word and deed. Uh, in Acts 2, for example, Peter and the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and went on to speak in other languages and preach the gospel to thousands, of which 3,000 ended up being saved. On a broad level, uh, this phrasing is consistently associated with a message from God, from David in the Old Testament to, we'll see here in the next chapter, to Zechariah and Simeon um, in the New Testament. 
As a result, we can be confident in the complete truthfulness and weight of what Elizabeth says. So Luke is pretty intentional in his entire gospel to highlight the work of the Spirit. Uh, This is especially apparent and important here. Um, Two people respond to Jesus in this passage. We've just talked about how Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, but also John the Baptist. Back in verse 15 of chapter 1, uh, Gabriel tells Zechariah that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And we see the fulfillment of that promise here. So seeing the Holy Spirit so evidently active, I want to dive into one of the Spirit's main roles in this passage and therefore uh, in our life as well, which is revealing the true nature of Jesus in order to save and mature those God has called. So for those of us that grow grew up in the church, it's easy to just read over this passage and move on, but we have to acknowledge that two people who should have no ability to recognize and respond to Jesus respond to him as Lord. So John the Baptist, to start, as a baby in the womb we just mentioned, fulfills his purpose of being the forerunner of the Messiah by leaping for joy in the presence of Jesus, another baby who's in the womb. So an unborn baby recognizes and responds to another unborn baby. Similarly, Elizabeth has no way of knowing that Mary is pregnant. Um, She's not showing at this point in her pregnancy. But even more so, Mary hasn't had time to tell Elizabeth about anything that has happened to her. So even if Elizabeth somehow guessed that Mary came because she was pregnant, there would be no way for Elizabeth to know that she was carrying Jesus, the Messiah. So a minority of scholars do think that it's possible that the word Greeting in verse 41 could mean an extended Middle Eastern greeting in which Mary explained everything that had happened to her. But Luke seems to imply that that's not the case, that Mary walked in and Elizabeth responded. Uh, Therefore, we can confidently say that the Holy Spirit directly intervened in the lives of John and Elizabeth in order for them to acknowledge Jesus in a situation where no human could have acknowledged him on their own. The Holy Spirit alone leads them to recognize Jesus. Uh, I think pressing pause here to contrast that with a lack of ability to recognize Jesus is worth it. So if you could turn with me to John 5, uh, 37 through 40. So to set the stage here, again, John 5, 37 through 40. Um, Jesus equated himself with God right before this by calling God his father. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law refuse to believe his message, and Jesus responds. And so we'll pick it up in verse 37. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not, never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So verse 39 says that the Pharisees and teachers of the law search the scriptures because they are trying to find eternal life. And at the end of the book in Luke, we see that Jesus explains to his disciples that all of these scriptures point to him as the source of that eternal life. And yet the Pharisees and teachers of the law still do not recognize and believe in him. They would have been the most learned and educated uh, religious scholars of the day, knowing as much as you can know, and yet they don't submit to who Jesus is. 
So in an almost comical contrast, John the Baptist as an unborn baby submits to who Jesus is, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law don't. Uh, it's clear that without the Holy Spirit, no human can recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone, given to believers by grace alone, through Christ alone, enables us to see and respond to Jesus. There is nothing in us, no effort, that can lead us to seeing Christ as Lord on our own. So, going one level deeper to fully understand the Spirit's work here, um, we need to look at verse 43, where Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. So the word Lord is used more than two dozen times in the first two chapters of Luke. And every single case except this one refers to God himself. Except in this case, Lord is used to refer to Jesus, the same word. So the Spirit, through Elizabeth, is testifying to the deity of Jesus by calling him Lord. In a similar manner, last week we saw Gabriel professing the deity of Christ through his eternal kingdom. He will have the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The Spirit is testifying that Jesus comes as Lord and also as King. So then why does this matter? Why is it important that the Spirit's testimony is Jesus is Lord and King? Uh, first, the American church today, we enjoy talking about Jesus' support and friendship. Uh, don't get me wrong, that, that's 100% true. Jesus is truly our friend. But there's a temptation to pick and choose what aspects of Christ we submit to. And the easy option is to only view Jesus as an optional, loving friend who is there for you when you need him. However, the testimony about Jesus from the Spirit is primarily a picture of him as Lord and King. And this actually paints a picture of an infinitely more loving God than the dumbed-down version of Jesus taught otherwise. A loving God who is perfect, good, and right in all he does, but does not reign and rule over the lives of his people, is a God with no power. He is optional and only needs to be called upon when circumstances get tough. The fact that the Bible calls us to recognize Jesus as Lord over our lives is actually a testament of God's love to us, that we may believe and be justified by his grace. He knows what is best for us, and calling us to submit to him is therefore a call to truly live. Now, the second reason it's critical that the Spirit reveals Christ as Lord and King is submission to his rule. Uh, you see, even the demons recognize Jesus. They respond to him as God. They see him as God. But the difference is whether that recognition is voluntary or involuntary. Without the Spirit, we will not voluntary rec voluntarily recognize Jesus as Lord because we love our sin. We don't want to. You don't need to turn there, uh, but John 3, 18 through 19 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Without the Spirit, we love the darkness more than the light. In other words, we love our sin and are not willing to repent and turn to Jesus. A Lord and King is one you submit to. Uh, the demons do not submit, but we are called to believe in and submit to Jesus. Now, that brings us to a problem. Uh, John and Elizabeth professed Jesus as Lord because they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, but we know that without the Spirit, we cannot say Jesus is Lord. 
And if we do not confess that truth, there are consequences. We just read in John 3 uh, that whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those that do not believe in or recognize the Son of God stand condemned before a holy God. Unbelievers stand under his judgment for refusing to confess Jesus' lordship. This does not need to cause us fear as believers, though. Romans 5.8 says that while we are still sinners, while we didn't believe, while we refused to recognize Jesus as Lord, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Through Christ's death, he has taken on the condemnation and wrath for our prideful refusal to acknowledge him. Through his death, we can receive the Spirit who helps us understand the things freely given us by God. The primary thing being the forgiveness we receive through Jesus. This gift of grace gives us confidence and security, as we know that our faith does not rest on our ability to see Christ, but on the Spirit. As far as application goes, uh, believing in the work of the Spirit radically changes how we live out our lives as followers of Christ. Uh, in the Galatian church, I think is a good example, Paul is to rebuke them for transitioning from lives walking in the Spirit to lives walking by the flesh. They were tempted to find justification and sanctification through the law, not the Holy Spirit. I think in a similar manner for each of us, uh, we need to ask, are we trying to see and follow Christ by relying on the Spirit? Or, if we're being honest with ourselves, by relying on our own effort, Bible reading, prayer, community. Uh, we often functionally believe that we're saved by grace, but that we are sanctified by grace plus our own effort. So when we functionally believe that, our efforts earn us the ability to see and know God and not the Spirit. We are actually nullifying His grace, and our walk with Him turns into a checklist, where if we believe we do X, Y, and Z, God owes us His blessing. Uh, we live in a world that is an input-output world, in which you do a certain things, five easy steps, nine ways to do this, you will get a desired result. Uh, we have been taught this physically. You eat healthy, you work out, you will be healthier. We have taught, been taught this in our jobs. If you do these things, you put in the work, you will receive recognition, money, security. Even our relationships can often turn into a checklist. Um, but when we do that with God, we are putting ourselves on the throne. We are telling God, if I do these things for you, if I follow the law, you owe me something. And in fact, we are putting ourselves in God's place, um, fighting for his glory, not relying on him. And so none of us uh, who are believers would consciously say that we are doing that, but I think we can unconsciously believe that, that our ability to know Christ and to see him is rooted in our disciplines or our behaviors. And this couldn't be further from the truth. Like Elizabeth and John, we need the Spirit alone to reveal the beauty of God to us um, for salvation, but on a daily basis. I think 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, uh, if you guys want to turn there, it paints a really good picture of what this biblically looks like. So 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. So starting in verse 17, uh, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So pay really close attention to the progression here. We are transformed or sanctified only through beholding the glory of God. And we behold the glory of God only through the work of the Spirit. And truly understanding that reality, that progression, it changes our focus and changes our prayers. Uh, No longer do we have to seek holiness and sanctification by striving to merely modify our behavior or do and say spiritual things or meet the requirements of the law. Um, If you have an honest opinion of yourself, you know you'll never be able to do that anyway. Uh, But the good news of the gospel is that we can be led by the Spirit to focus on our Lord and King, independent of our own goodness. We can spend time thinking about Jesus, who came as a baby, spent 30 years waiting to start his ministry, only to minister to a people that would never repent and see him and recognize him, submitted to human authority, endured floggings, whippings, mockings, torture, was despised, carried his own cross, only to have nails pounded through his hands and feet, and suffocated to death over a course of six hours all the while enduring the wrath of God for our sin. We can meditate on that and see that the love and care God has for us. We can see the intentionality he had and the lengths he was willing to go to save sinners. And he loves us just simply because he loves us. That's it. And so meditating on that glory is is what we're called to do. Uh, And the Father is gracious and promises to give his spirit to those who ask, just as an earthly father give good gifts to his children. And so we can have faith and confidence that those who believe in Christ will receive the Spirit and have eyes to see and hearts to respond to the glory of God. And that, I think, not our effort or ability, that is truly good news. So on a daily basis, how do we meditate on his glory? Um, I think just as we enjoy seeing a loved one for the thousandth time, or we look at a piece of art or nature and are in awe or even just enjoying good food on a daily basis. Uh, we, we need to set ourselves up to regularly have situations where we can enjoy God. Getting in the word, prayer, praise, Sabbath, all are not things of the law to check off, but all are mediums of God's grace for us. They are gifts he has given us to connect to him so that we can be filled with knowledge and awe of who he is. So I encourage each of you to think through, and it looks different for each person, but what are ways in your day and week that you can spend time meditating on the glory of God? That's how God sanctifies us, not through our effort earning anything, but through him graciously revealing his character to us. Uh, And we can be confident that he's faithful and trust that he'll complete his work in us through the Spirit. The last point I want to make here is that uh, this passage and the reality of what we just talked about, the Spirit's work in our lives, should change how we pray. Uh, Too often in in my own prayer life, I find myself praying for things or circumstance changes or behavior modification. Um, Well, that's not inherently wrong. It's it's missing the bigger picture. Because of the progression we talked about, where the Spirit reveals the glory of God and then we are transformed, um, we can pray for the Spirit reveal God's goodness. We can pray that the Spirit would show us God's love and faithfulness and justice and forgiveness. Uh, We only change when our hearts change, and the promised Spirit is the only one who can change our hearts. 
So we pray not to, to act differently, uh, but we pray to see and believe differently. And we pray with confidence that because of Christ, the Spirit will change our hearts. All right, moving on to the last verse here um, and focusing on the, the faith that the Spirit gives us. Um, verse 45 says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So there are echoes here of Mary's own response of faith that we read about last week. Um, in verse four, uh, 38, Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So as we talked about on Sunday, Mary accepted God's word and believed despite every worldly circumstance telling her not to. Logically, socially, culturally, uh, belief was not the, the smart thing to do, but Mary glorified God through her faith. Um, God is a God whose word never fails. His promises never fall flat. Uh, he's worthy of our faith. And as followers of him, uh, to believe is, is our role. Jesus says this in, in John six twenty nine when he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in, whom, in him whom he has sent. Humanity has only two options. You can either believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, or you cannot believe. And the consequences of unbelief and the blessings of belief are beyond what we can imagine. So turn with me to Matthew 12, 31 through 32. Now to set the stage here while you turn, um, Jesus has just healed a demon-possessed man. And the people who witnessed the healing are wondering if he is the Messiah. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in an effort to discredit Jesus uh, tell the people that it is by the work of demons that Jesus cast out the demon. Uh, now, Jesus logically proves their argument wrong, but he ends with this statement, uh, starting in verse 31 of chapter 12. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So this has been deemed the, the unforgivable sin. Uh, and we won't go through every single viewpoint or thought on this passage, but in, in context, the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Spirit, is quite simply the, the sin of attributing the work of God to the devil. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that if they continue to witness the miraculous work of God, and tell others that it is demonic work, they are directly opposed to the Spirit. They are enemies of his message that we are to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. The Spirit's role is to declare and bear witness that Christ is Lord. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Pharisees are directly denying the message of the Holy Spirit by attributing Jesus' work to the devil. The only sin that actually sends people to hell is denying the gospel or denying Christ. In his parables, Jesus repeatedly puts people into two groups, those who believe on him to be saved and those who do not believe. Jesus is warning the Pharisees that their refusal to believe in the message of the Spirit, that Christ is God, is leaving them close to denying the gospel and joining that unbelieving group. The Pharisees' attempt to attack the Spirit is simply a, a fruit of their unrepentant and unbelieving heart. 
They see Jesus' work, hear his message, witness his miracles and his healings, and don't accept him. The unforgivable sin, denying the Spirit's testimony about Jesus, is the end destination of those that just don't believe in him. And disbelief in Jesus is a sin that cannot be forgiven because it is a sin that is directly opposed to saving faith. Now, without help, um, this leaves us under God's wrath because the Bible declares that no one can believe without the grace of God. But we can rest secure that true belief is given, not earned. Ephesians 2.8 says that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Faith is a gift. Just as the Spirit has been given to us as a gift, faith is ours also to receive. We need to remind ourselves that any faith we have is a gift, and it cannot be merited or manufactured, and it's not to be taken for granted. There is freedom in knowing that true faith is completely given by a gracious Father. And when faith is received as a gift, the believer doesn't have to worry about committing the unforgivable sin. If we truly believe that all we have, we've received from God, and that the Spirit alone provides us saving faith, we can be confident that the Spirit alone will not let us blaspheme the Spirit. When our faith rests on God, not us, we have assurance and security. Just as the Spirit helps us to see Jesus for who he really is, the Spirit also gives us faith to truly believe in him. So now we've seen the consequences of lack of faith, but the assurance that faith is a gift. What is the blessing of faith? So looking back at verse 45, uh, we see the word blessed being used to describe Mary. Now blessed can be translated as, as happy here, in a sense. So in other words, happy is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The fruit of our received faith is happiness. We can be happy because we believe in the promises of God. We can be happy when we believe that he washed away our sins as far as the east is from the west. We can be happy when we think that he loved us and gave himself for us and is with us forever. And we can be happy when we believe his promise that in his presence is fullness of joy. Now these promises don't happen on our timetable, but when we preach them to ourselves by the power of the Spirit, faith grows. And true faith, centered on God, truly makes us happy. So again, our confidence isn't in ourselves, but in the Holy Spirit. We have an inability to see and believe in Jesus that deserves punishment. But the good news of the gospel is that through Christ's death on the cross, on our behalf, we can have faith that the Spirit will give us the ability to believe in and follow Jesus. So we're able to stand in awe of a God who came as a baby, to a people with no ability to recognize or believe in him. And yet through his life, death, and resurrection, the believer in Christ can have confidence that our unbelief is atoned for through the cross and that we are free to receive the fullness of relationship with a loving Father. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, we thank and praise you um, that in your wisdom, you gave your spirit uh, to your people. We thank you, Spirit, that you reveal the Father, that you reveal the Son, that you give us faith to believe in what Jesus has done, that you have rescued us from unbelief and doubt and sin, and that through your power alone, um, you enable us to be saved and also to continue to grow in our knowledge of you, that we may see the height and depth and width 
and length of your love. God, we ask that, Spirit, you would continue to be active in this church and that you would show us how good you are and that that would overflow into the other areas of our lives uh, for your glory alone. We love you. Amen.